Let's all turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Jesus has just been in the wilderness, uh, in the scripture that we're about to read, um, and tempted of the devil. And we step into the story at verse 16, Luke chapter 4, verse 16, as he enters his hometown, Nazareth. And I'm going to read a few scriptures here, so bear with me. So Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has, anoint, has sent, sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, You will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also hear in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent. Save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Alessius, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and led him unto the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. We've just read that Jesus goes to his hometown. He enters the synagogue to preach. And what, uh, what he says to those in the synagogue offends them and fills them with such anger and hatred for Jesus to the point that they take him to the top of a hill to push him over, to kill him. What was it that he said that offended them so deeply? Why did they react with such extreme wrath? So tonight, I hope to answer this or help us to understand how these scriptures apply to our lives today and to pose this question to you. Do you want what you need? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we've come into your house, Lord Jesus, to praise you, to lift you up and now to hear from you, Lord God. We need you, Jesus. We need to hear your word. We need to take it on board, Lord God. We need to allow it to, Lord, take root in our hearts. And tonight, Lord, you've laid this message upon my heart. And I know it's for us, Lord. And I just pray, as Lord, I minister God, I pray that we would be open to receive the word with gladness. And that, Lord, we would take it. We wouldn't just hear it, but we would be doers of your word. 
I thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your mercy. Tonight you are so great and so mighty, and we worship you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Many of us, if not all, have at some point or another been presented with a choice between something we want and something we need. Usually the need is not as exciting or as desired as the want. A simple example is when you go to a buffet and you're presented with, I'm just thinking of the last time I went to a buffet, there was roast pork belly there and there was cheesecake and there was fried chicken. But I was also given the option of quinoa salad or a fruit platter or vegetables. There are a select few of us that would choose what our body needs. But the majority of us would go straight for what we think tastes good. Another example is the want of sleep and the need to get up and go to work in the morning. There are a few crazy people, I think Sister Katarina is one of them, that gets up before the sun maybe and have completed their to-do list before 8 a.m. But most of us prefer a sleep-in. There is most often a clear distinction between wants and needs. And although we may convince ourselves that we need what we want, more often than not, wants are not required for survival. Wants could be pizza. It could be a castle to live in. A night out at a nice restaurant. Shopping. Needs are usually a lot more important. A roof over our head. Nutritious food. Medicine and access to healthcare. Learning to read. Good family relationships. The problem is, is that our natural man, that inner voice, often convinces us that we need what we want, when in actual fact, we should be wanting what we need. Verse 16 of Luke 4 says that Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. The people that were there, when they looked at him when he spoke, they would have been his friends. They would have been the people that uh, grew up with him, that he played games with outside it was their fellow human being and there were uh people that probably ate at his dining table with his family these were people he knew this was his hometown where he grew up they were expecting jesus to share the word maybe bring some insight to what he was reading then sit down and that would be it we read that he drew on a scripture from isaiah 61 what we know as a messianic prophecy this scripture was a prophecy about the coming king the one that would deliver them from their sin. The Jews, however, had interpreted this scripture to mean a physical deliverance from the oppressive rule of the Romans over them. They were expecting a physical king to ride in on a great horse with a great army who would overthrow the Romans and set up his kingdom and they would live happily ever after. And although there will be a physical deliverance in time to come, this was not the time. Luke chapter 4 and 21 says, And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Huh? You're Jesus. You're our friend. The one we hung out with when we were teenagers. You're telling me that you are the one that's going to bring deliverance to us? Their response was, Is this not Joseph's son? Isn't this just a a man? He doesn't look like the one who's going to bring us deliverance. Jesus knew their hearts and addressed their response by saying, you want proof. You're you're unable to believe me at my word. You want me to do a miracle or some powerful, amazing thing. Jesus knew that they were unable to believe that he was truly the Messiah. 
Because what they saw with their physical eyes was not what they expected would come. They wanted someone to come and fix their physical problems. But Jesus had come to do so much more than that. He had come to bring deliverance to their soul. He came to preach the gospel to the poor, the good news, to bring healing to the brokenhearted. It wasn't, it wasn't a physical brokenness of their heart. It was deeper than that. It was spiritual. He came to preach deliverance to captives, not of Roman oppression, but deliverance from sin. And we read just one chapter over in Luke chapter 5 of the account of where Jesus is sitting down with what the Jews might have called low lives. They were tax collectors, sinners, horrible people. And they question, why are you sitting with them? And Jesus' response to their question in verse 31 and 32 of Luke 5 says, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, is he saying that there's some righteous people that don't need him in the world? Because Romans 3 says that there's none righteous, no, not one, except for God. So what's he saying here in Luke chapter 5? It wasn't that there were righteous people that didn't need help. It was that everyone, everyone needed a physician. But it was only those that admitted that they were sinners and needed healing. They are the ones that he came for, the ones that were willing to accept what he was offering. I'm here to bring healing to your spiritual sickness. But if you do not admit that you need the physician, if you do not admit your need for me, then I cannot heal you. Luke 4 and 24 says, And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. You only see me as a man, but I am the Messiah, the anointed one, and I've come to heal your spiritual sickness. But because I don't fit your preconceived ideas or your preferences, because you don't believe that you need saving from yourselves, I cannot do what I want to do for you. And then Jesus takes, uh, speaks of two historical accounts in the Old Testament where non-Jews, people not of the covenant, people that were considered unsavable, they were able to receive healing. Why? Why was it that a man and a woman, not a part of the covenant people, got what they needed? So let's look at their stories. We'll go to the first one, and that's the widow in Zarephath. Uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 25 and 26, we'll just read those scriptures again. But I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And her story is found in 1 Kings chapter 17. And we find this widow woman in the middle of a famine that Elijah had prophesied to the wicked king of Israel, Ahab. The famine was to last three and a half years. The Lord sustained Elijah for a while and then commanded him to go to Zarephath where this widow woman was. Elijah rocks up at the gate of the city and sees this woman that God has spoken of. She's collecting sticks. He doesn't say hello. He doesn't give an introduction. Just the following. Verse 10 of 1 Kings 17 says, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. This woman had no ties to Israel or the prophet. She was not of covenant. 
could not claim Abraham as her ancestor. She was probably an idol worshipper. And yet, when the man of God asked her to do something, she did not disobey. There was no requirement for her to listen to the prophet or to be obedient. But verse 11 says, and as she was going to fetch it, there, there was, there's no break between verse 10 and 11. It's like, go get me water. Okay. There wasn't, do you realize we're in the middle of a famine? Do you realize what you're asking of me? This is not acceptable of you to do that. Who are you anyway? I don't know your name. You don't know me. But verse 11 says, And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. When either God or the leader that God has placed in our lives tells us to do something, what is our first response? Is it to immediately go and fetch water? Or do we say, no, I don't want to? Or who gives you the right to tell me what to do? And we read, as she went to go get this water, as she was obedient to the command of Elijah, he asked for more. I mean, I, I can spare a small amount of water. I'm going to die anyway. That I can do, but, but you want food as well? Sometimes the Lord will ask more of you than you think you can handle or that you can give. It can seem to our physical eyes and ears that it's unfair. What does this widow woman do though? She tells Elijah exactly where she's at. I don't have enough for you. I don't even have enough for myself and my son. I'm about to cook this measly little bit of food that I have and then my son and I are going to die. She was honest with Elijah. She didn't pretend that everything was okay, but she said, Elijah, I have nothing to give you. When God comes knocking at our door and he asks things of us, are we honest with him? Do we share with him how we are really doing? Or do we pretend that everything is okay? Elijah's response to the woman was this. Verse 13 and 14 says, And Elijah said unto her, Fear not, go and do as you have said, but make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and after make for thee and for thy son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruse of oil fail until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. And what was the woman's response to this? Bearing in mind she was not a believer, she was not of God's chosen people. Verse 15 says, And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah. And she and he and her house did eat many days. She believed and she obeyed. It was unconventional. It was not normal to give your last bit of food to someone else other than yourself or your family. But this woman was hungry enough to admit her need and surrender to the will of God that she had only heard about. Jesus shares this story of this woman with these Pharisees in Luke 4, showing them that although they may have been the children of God, God responds to obedience. He responds to humility and he responds to honesty. The Pharisees of Luke 4 lived as though nothing was wrong. They were looking for someone to deliver them from their external oppression when Jesus had come to deliver them from themselves. But when he came and said that they needed to repent, 
that they were spiritually sick, they would not accept it. They were not willing to be honest and say, I need help. They weren't willing to believe and be obedient to what Jesus said. The second historical account Jesus mentions in Luke 4.27 is of Naaman's leprosy. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisus, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. This is a story of a Syrian man, another Gentile, again, not of the Israelite people. And we find the actual account in 2 Kings 5. Verse 1 says, Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. It just so happens that after one of the Syrian raids, an Israelite girl is captured, and she ends up being the servant girl of Naaman's wife. Now this young girl, she knows the prophet in her land. She's heard of the miracles. And she also knows that Naaman has leprosy. And so she goes to Naaman's wife and she says in verse 3, she said unto her mistress, Would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. What courage from this young girl. She's a servant girl. They didn't get well well treated. But this young girl, I don't know, it, it seems that she was quite a young girl. She wasn't an older woman. She was young. And yet she spoke up about God in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of captivity, she spoke up and stood for what God had done for her and for her people. So what did Naaman do at this point? Remember, he's currently the enemy of Israel. But he has the king of Syria write a letter to the king of Israel saying that he's, he's coming, his servant Naaman's coming to be healed of the prophet Elisha. That's quite humbling because Naaman, is, he's a powerful person. He's an important person. He's got a lot of authority. And yet he is going to Israel, the people that they don't like. He's going to them to get healing. At this point, you have to know that Naaman is highly esteemed by the king of Syria. He's a mighty man of valor and he's pretty important. In verse 9 and 10 of 2 Kings 5, we read, So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and you shall be clean. Elisha spent a lot of time with Elijah, and I think maybe a little bit of Elijah's harshness probably rubbed off on Elisha. (laughs) This important commander of the Syrian army could probably lop off Elisha's head if he wanted to. (laughs) He's like, "Eh, I'll send my messenger. Elisha's response to the knock at the door is to send someone else. But what's Naaman's response? Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Farpa rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Naaman's initial response is wrath and anger. I'm an important person and his pride gets in the way. Why is he making me go and wash in this dirty Jordan River seven times? Why isn't once enough? Why can't I go to the other rivers that are nicer? 
Again, the way God was bringing about a healing to this man was unconventional. It was not socially acceptable for Elisha to send someone to this man of authority, but it was God's way, and that's all that mattered. When God asks us to do something that isn't acceptable in our eyes, something that we may think is beneath us or not what we expected, what is our response? What do we do when God asks us to give a little more, do a little more, present our hurts to him? Thank the Lord for Naaman's servants that again had the courage to challenge their master's response. Verse 13 and 14 says, And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much rather than when he says to you, wash and be clean? I know what you're expecting is thunder and lightning from heaven to match your importance, but how much easier is it to just do what the prophet says? And what did he do? Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Naaman had to humble himself. He had to accept the word of the prophet, believe it, and obey it. Ultimately, yes, he went off track for a minute there, but ultimately Naaman was desperate enough to admit his need and obey God's word. Again, Jesus reaches back to history. To share this story of Naaman to show the religious Jews that unless they surrender to his way and humble themselves and obey what he says, he is unable to do what he wants to do for them. There are so many other stories in the Old Testament and first-hand experiences that the Jews saw with their own eyes in the New Testament that show them that they must first be willing to ask for help, to humble themselves and admit their need for him. And we often look back at the Israelites, the Jews, and we give them a hard time. And we look at how they dealt with things, both in the Old and the New Testament. But tonight I want to challenge us a little bit and maybe help us understand that although this passage in Luke 4 was spoken to the Jews, it has current day meaning for us as oneness apostolics. We are so blessed and so privileged to know Jesus, to know that he is God and that his name is the only name whereby we can and must be saved. Without the revelation of Jesus, we can, uh, Jesus' name, baptism, and the necessity of being filled with the Holy Spirit, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. And we know that. We've had that revelation. We have that truth. But just like those Jews, we can be in church a long time, and we can start to think that we're all okay that we don't need any help. Humans are great at acting. You've heard the saying, fake it till you make it. We go about life pretending that we know exactly what we're doing, especially adults. We do this all the time. We, we just don't tell anyone. <laughs> and I do it all the time at work. I'm walking around, yeah, 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 yeah. Yep, yep, I'll do that, yep, sure. Half the time I'm like, what, huh, inside? But I don't let that on. At work, I can usually figure it out. What I need to know is usually on Google. So I can just go onto Google and ask the question. I don't have to ask anyone for help. I don't have to, you know, humble myself. I can just go, Google will help me, and then no one will know. But in our walk with God, you can't Google the answer. You can't Google what you want to know or what what, what you think is the right way. We have to go to God open and transparent 
The thing is, God already knows. He sees the state of our hearts, all of it. The wounds, the bitterness, the captivity to our past, the sickness, the doubt, fear, and so on. Paul admits in Romans 7, 18, for I know, I know, I'm admitting that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. And we might think, oh, but I'm a, I'm a good person. I'm a nice person. I don't murder. I don't, do, I don't steal. I don't do all those things. But the word says there is nothing good in your flesh. And the sooner we accept that, the better off we are going to be. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Paul is honest with himself. I struggle to do what is right. I know what I need to do, but what I want to do seems to be stronger. I don't want what I need. James 1 verse 23 and 24 says, For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, He is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholds himself, beholdeth himself, and goes his way, and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. Every time we open the word of God, every time we sit under the voice of our pastor or others who minister in this pulpit, we are given a mirror to look into. And we want Jesus to fix our physical circumstances We want him to take away our physical trial, but he's wanting to do a greater thing. He wants to bring about transformation in the depths of our hearts, but he cannot bring healing to those parts of our hearts that we do not acknowledge need fixing. What does the mirror show you when you look into the word? What is it that we need to look at and admit is there? When the mirror of the word of God shows us something that needs healing or change, do we do what James said? Do we walk away and forget what we saw? I would venture to say that it's not that we forget, we just don't want to remember. We, we, we pretend that it's not there. When, we, when he shows us something that needs healing, it's not to make us feel terrible and worthless. It's to highlight an issue that can then be dealt with. The way the world deals with things that need to be dealt with in our hearts is to point the finger at everyone else and blame anything and everything for the reason they are a certain way. Now, I don't want to diminish anyone's experience here. I know enough stories from people's lives in this room to know that we didn't all grow up in a loving home. We didn't all have the perfect childhood and some of us not a great adulthood either. And it is appalling some of the circumstances and the experiences that you've had to deal with in your lifetime. But God isn't wanting you to live with a victim mentality that will hide the issue, that will hinder God's ability to bring healing to your spiritual sickness. The other thing that humans say is, this is just who I am. I've said it, I've thought it, and I'd venture to say that we've all probably said it at one time or another. But I've come tonight to challenge that thought I refuse, I refuse to accept that Jesus went through the horrendous death of crucifixion just to bring me into his family at this point and then leave me the way I am. That's not, that's only where your journey begins. That is the start of your journey. 
But having the mindset that this is just who I am is a result of pride and an unwillingness to go through the change process. And we've all been there. I've been there. I've been unwilling at times. I haven't wanted to admit where I'm at. But 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things, they're gone. They're passed away. Behold, all things are become new. When we enter into a relationship with Jesus, he loves us where we are at. But he wants to change us into a new creature. At the initial entrance into his family, we washed, we're cleansed. But as 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, it's an ongoing process. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. You know those prayers you pray, God, make me like you. I want to be like you. Make me more like Jesus. And then he shows us in the mirror, okay, well, this is not me. This doesn't reflect me. You need to change that. It's you, At that moment when you first step into the family of God, that's only the beginning. We should always be seeing growth in our lives. From the moment we step into the family of God to the moment he takes us home, there should be growth. We're never going to reach perfection on this earth, but we have to be growing. We have to be going towards that so that when he comes back for us, we are ready. We can be different. We can be changed. We don't have to stay the way we've always been. And we can be free from our past experiences. But we must be prepared to let go of what we want, what we expect, and accept what we need. The Jews thought they knew what they needed. They wanted a deliverer to remove them from their physical circumstance. But Jesus came to deal with their hearts individually. But they didn't want what they actually needed. Sister Katerina shared with us this morning about how God had miraculously provided for the Israelites. From the beginning of time, he had called them out as his people. And yet when he, the king of kings and the creator of the universe, stood before them in that synagogue in human form and he said, I'm here It's me. This day is this scripture fulfilled. I am the anointed one. I am the Messiah. I've come to bring you healing and restoration. I've come to deliver you. They rejected him. John 1.11 says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And in current day Israel, they are still waiting for their Messiah. Luke 19.44 says, They missed their day of visitation. And Jesus has been speaking to us as a church clearly about obedience and submitting to his will. Our visitation is now. He's calling us to be honest with ourselves. Not He already knows, but we have to be honest with ourselves, to humble ourselves under his hand and to enter into that process of change by being obedient to what he asks of us. Refusing to surrender to the Lord, it steals you of joy. It kills your joy. Pastor spoke about Psalm 19 today, and in verse 8 it said that the statutes of the Lord are right. Those things that we need to live by and be obedient to, they are right. Rejoicing the heart. 
When you submit to the word of God and you finally let him do what he needs to do in your heart, your heart will rejoice. There is joy in submission and surrender. I can tell you that because I've experienced it for myself. I've been at the crossroad of need and want and so many times have gone the wrong way. But when I finally go, "Mm -mm, I'm going to go down the path of what I need to do, what I need to be, I finally accept, I finally receive that joy. But if I don't, it's exhausting because you're fighting with God. You are never going to win that battle. You are fighting with the King of Kings, the God of all the universe. You are going to get exhausted. You're going to get, you're going to be sorrowful. You're going to have no joy. And I see it like this. There's three different uh, parts of your life. There's your past, your present, and your future. And you may have things in your past that have control over you, that hold you captive. And every time you want to move forward, you you know, pastor preaches a, a vision Sunday. We're all excited about where we're going or God's speaking to you about something and you go to move forward and you can't because your past is like this boulder that's sitting there and there's a rope wrapped around you and you cannot go forward until you have let go of that. You may have fear of the future. Pastor preaches vision Sunday and you're like, oh, I don't know about that. And all you do is you refuse to look ahead. And so what you do is you just kind of, you just avoid it. You distract yourself with things in the here and now so you don't have to face it. So you don't move forward. So your past is holding you back. Your future's holding you back. Or maybe it's something in the here and now that God wants you to do. But it's not what you want to do. It's unconventional and it doesn't make logical sense. But it's like a brick wall that you cannot get around. And you try to walk around it because I want to go where everyone else is going. I want to I want to be that person. But there's this wall and it just kind of follows you and you're like trying to get around it. But it keep I'm not I'm not letting you go any further. You have to deal with this right now. And until you deal with this, I cannot let you go there. You're not ready for there because you haven't dealt with this. When we begin to understand the value of what is needed in our lives, we will begin to want what we need more than what our flesh desires. The Jews in Luke 4 were furious with Jesus because they did not believe that he could actually be the Messiah. They were furious with him because he pointed out their unbelief and hardness of heart. They did not want what they needed. It didn't fit their plan. It didn't fix their physical circumstance. It meant they had to humble themselves and it meant that they would have to be honest about the state of their hearts. And they missed the time of their visitation because of their unbelief, their pride and their unwillingness to be obedient to the word of God. If I can have a musician. You know, we were singing those songs tonight and even this morning about as we sing, we believe prison walls fall down or strongholds break that when we sing that what are we singing about what are those strongholds we're not talking about physical prisons we're not talking about physical circumstances these are things in our mind and in our heart and we can believe him for a physical miracle i believe that god can heal your physical body 
But often when we are singing these songs, we think it's about the physical, but actually what God is saying is, I want to do a miracle in your heart. I want to do it in your heart because that's where it matters most. Yeah, I could deliver you from a physical circumstance, but you're not going to learn what it's what it means to endure, what it means to be patient. You won't grow the fruit of the Spirit because I haven't been able to give you situation because you just want me to remove you from those things. And so your heart stays the same way it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. But we need to be growing. There are another group of Jews, not the Pharisees, but a group of people that were waiting for a Messiah. They believed that he was coming to rid them of their oppression and deliver them from Roman rule as well. They were just like the other Jews that had grown up believing the same thing. But when Jesus stood before them individually and said, follow me, they didn't question, they didn't walk away, but instead they obeyed. The disciples, those 12 men, were just like other Jews Brought up thinking that the Messiah would come to them with an army to overthrow Rome. But when he did come, it was not the way they thought. But instead of being angry with Jesus, instead of trying to block out his call to repentance and surrender, they dropped everything to follow him. They knew they had a need. And although the need wasn't being fulfilled the way that they wanted it to be, their need was greater than their preconceived ideas or their preferences. And tonight the Lord walks amongst us and he wants to heal, he wants to minister, he wants to bring deliverance to our hearts, he wants to take the broken things and mend them. But it is up to you and I to surrender whatever it is to him. Hebrews 12 verse 12 and 13 says, Wherefore, Lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Let's stand tonight. Would you come to this altar tonight and lift up your weaknesses to him? You don't have to be ashamed or feel embarrassed about your past, your present or your future. He's dealt with all those things. When you came into the family of God, he dealt with all those things. But it's up to us to leave them behind. We have to admit that we need him. So these altars are open tonight for you to come and present your lame parts in your life, the feebleness, the hurts, the wounds, so that they can be healed. Don't be like the Pharisees pretending that everything is okay. Don't let pride hinder you from the transformation that he wants to make in your life. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah.